And welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Paul Gillette, and joining me today is Tom Hochul. Uh, Tom's the author of the July Model Railroad Hobbyist cover story, which is Rail Fanning the Pine Ridge Railroad. So good to have you, Tom. Well, thank you, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me to uh, participate in this podcast. really appreciate it. Okay, not a problem. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself. Okay. Well, I grew up in Iowa in the late uh, 40s, uh, stayed in Iowa through the late 60s. And uh, I guess like uh, a lot of kids, I started off with a, a small train set. I had a little uh, wooden train set with, with uh, wooden tracks that clipped together with grooves in it that you pulled the cars along. That was very similar to what the kids have today as a Brio train set. Um, my brother had an American Flyer, larger train set. He's five years older than I was, and uh, when I turned five, I also got an American Flyer train set. So that kind of set the the stage for me, uh, getting very interested, very interested in trains. Um, I, uh, I grew up in Iowa, went to college there, uh, went into the Air Force uh, during the Vietnam War, and spent about three years in the Air Force in Arkansas. And after after that, I moved to California, Southern California, for about three years. Uh, worked in the worked for a major airline out of Los Angeles. Worked uh, for a few years for a, a city uh, government, and then in about early 90s, I started working for a consulting firm. And about three years after that, went into uh, business for myself as a consultant. I my career has been in information systems, and I'm currently uh, involved in enterprise architecture and business intelligence systems, uh, particularly as it applies to uh, healthcare and banking. Um, I, in 1998, my wife and I moved to Colorado, and I've been here ever since. The uh, opportunity to move to Colorado and build a new home is really uh, uh, provided a really nice home for the Pine Ridge Railroad. Uh, backing up uh, to grade school, uh, my brother had switched from American Flyer to HO scale, uh, this was a few years before he went off to college. He had a, about a three and a half foot by seven foot, uh, HO layout, uh, just, just wide enough to make the 18 inch radius curves. And, um, a few years before he went off to college, he gave that layout to me. So I say that I inherited it from him and moved it from his bedroom to my bedroom. And he helped me out building some mountains and we got it operating, got all the switches powered and, he had uh, built a few um, true-scale buildings. Those are kind of cardstock and wood buildings. And I, I myself built some of the plastic kits, and uh, the Revell engine house comes to mind. Unfortunately, I don't have that kit. Um, I, I traded it for a Tyco General locomotive. Um, and then on, as I approached high school uh, and, you know, my folks knew we, we had lived uh, above a hardware store that my parents owned, uh, which was really nice because we had access to the uh, hobby manufacturer wholesalers catalog. So we got about a third off on the uh, on the uh, toys and and model trains. So that was that was that, that was a good deal. Um, and I had a I had a paper out for a few years. And I tell people I spent most of my money on trains and candy. Um, 
but as as a lot of kids get in high school, I I also like building model cars, and uh, I t- ended up tearing down the layout, and I pretty much kept everything that I could out of that, and um, I kind of set the so- hobby aside while I attended college and uh, and while I was in the Air Force, and just didn't have room for it. Um, after I moved to California, I uh, had an apartment with a room dedicated to the layout, and I, and I, I had a five by nine layout, and that was replaced with a six by ten layout. The five by nine layout was a loop to loop track plan had a had a spiral in there, a helix spiral. I, at the time, I thought maybe I invented it, but uh, they weren't very popular then. But it's it solved an elevation problem because I wanted to get a like mountain scenery, and I was able to incorporate that uh, using that that helix. The ten by six layout is where I really kind of cut my teeth on on my modeling skills. I was getting into doing scenery. I, I was using uh, Shinohara Code 70 track. <clears throat> I even experimented with a tab on car system, which I'll touch on later. The, um, I had a spray uh, gun, uh, so I started weathering cars and locomotive, and I I built a John Allen, a, a, a locomotive that was similar to one that John Allen had. It was based on a Mantua Tyco kit and had um, several plastic parts, sand dome, pilot, cab, that came off a Hobby Line plastic kit. And this was John Allen's number 42, and I numbered my locomotive 42 and and uh, decaled it up for the Pine Ridge Railroad. Um, I guess in about 1984 or so, I tore that layout down and moved into a home. I never built a layout in, that, in the home I moved into, but I, I continued to build car kits and a few locomotives and uh, several structures, uh, and those are all now on what I guess would be my fourth layout here in Colorado. When you look at, you know, your Pine Ridge, even without reading any text or anything, if you've seen John Allen's uh, gory and defeated layout, either I think there's a DVD out, there's a number of websites, there's been books on it, been in a lot of the publication. You pick up a lot of elements of uh, John's Railroad. How did you become aware of John Allen and uh, that influence? How did you or when did you begin to start translating that into the Pine Ridge? Well, it, it goes back to my brother again. Um, when I was probably six or seven, he had picked up a Varney catalog, which is an HO scale manufacturer of trains. Uh, this Varney catalog, he picked it up at a drugstore, and I, I still have that catalog. And in it were these amazing photographs by a person named John Allen. I, of course, didn't know who he was. And um, the photographs that he took for the settings for a lot of the Varney cars and engines were was one of his layouts. It was that uh, came from his first and what's considered to be his first and second layout. And uh, although the photos were black and white, the detail was amazing. Uh, he handmade his own figures. He uh, laid track on uh, wooden ties. He weathered things up. He made them look like they had been out in the sun. Uh, there were his cars were faded. Had all kinds of details, barrels and crates and scraps of wood and hoses. 
and it just, uh, automobiles, and it just really, uh, was something that I had really never seen before, even in, even in the Mueller Road and magazines. Uh, that, that level of detail, uh, I hadn't really seen before, and certainly not coming out of the, having a toy train background with the American Fire stuff, I hadn't really seen that before. Um, so that, and I don't know if that spurred my brother on. He, uh, sent in for, uh, the, uh, General Mills had a cereal promotion. He'd send in some box tops and about $3. And you would get some of the, you'd get, uh, maybe three or four Barney cars in the caboose and a dummy, uh, F3 locomotive. That's what started him off. Um, the, uh, when I was, so I always kind of followed him and I, and I, and my, my brother had subscriptions to, to Monterey and he picked up a few Monterey craftsmen. And there's a publication, uh, no longer in existence called Model Trains. And I, 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 you could always just pick up immediately when, uh, when the locomotive was, uh, when, when the layout set was from the glory and defeated. Uh, and I stated in the video that, uh, I did for, uh, MRH that, that, uh, that catalog had no reference for John Allen, and I guess my memory uh, hadn't served me, but there was one, there was one caption in one of those photographs where it said that Marlboro was glory and defeated, and of course, um, the way he spelled it, um, I, I don't, I'm sure that I didn't even come close to pronouncing it correctly, but, uh, that was my first exposure. Um, I remember before I went in, when I graduated from college, before I went into service, I think it was in, uh, 1969, maybe a January 1969 issue, had a, had a, had a passenger train running across the glory and defeated and he had really come a long way. These were color pictures and I, I really thought that was fascinating. When I was in the service, I hadn't been in the service but maybe 17, uh, weeks of tra- after basic, after officer training school, 12 weeks, about 17 weeks after that I was stationed. For six weeks in, uh, Lompoc, California, which is, kind of sits on the coast between, uh, Los Angeles and Monterey, uh, and I knew that John Allen lived in Monterey. And one weekend, this would have been in about 1970, February, March, uh, we took a trip up to, um, Cal- up to San Francisco. We spent the night, Mexico spent the night in Monterey, and on a Saturday morning I looked in the phone book and I found three John Allens listed in the phone book, and I just picked one and called it, and sure enough, the John Allen picked up the phone, and I introduced myself to him, and uh, I, I know that there were a lot of military folks that passed through that area that were interested in the hobby, and uh, he was he was gracious enough to to invite us over, uh, gave us directions. Um, I was, we spent about a half an hour there. I didn't want to wear out my welcome. Uh, John, uh, in typical fashion, back to switcher up to the yard, pulled some cars out, took an engine out of the turntable, engine house, spun it around the turntable and hooked it up and, and slowly ran it around the layout, which, uh, which probably took about a half an hour by the time he put it back. He, uh, uncoupled it and put everything back in its place. And I, I found out later that that was the, the typical Typical introduction uh, that he gave to visitors. I uh, that whole thing was a blur to me. That whole visit was a blur to me, but certainly left a huge impression. 
And uh, I, I always thought, um, although I wasn't going to be stationed in California for long, uh, I ended up back in Arkansas. But I always thought that I would uh, return for another visit. Well, as it turns out, after I got the service, um, I, I got a job in Los Angeles, California. And I was in California for about six weeks. And I was in a hobby shop, and I heard two gentlemen talking that um, they had sad news that John Allen had passed away. And then they had some more sad news, which was uh, a few days after he had passed away, his layout it, uh, was destroyed by fire. And uh, one of the, uh, probably the hobby shop owner said, well, I guess he just took it with him. Um, that was really, that was really crushing to his family, not only to his John Allen, but to uh, know that I would never uh, see the layout again. Kind of backing up a little bit before I left Arkansas, I had purchased a, a fine scale miniatures, his first edition of the two stall in, uh, engine house that was patterned off, off of John Allen's scratch built uh, two stall engine house that he had won several awards on. And I, I kind of, I didn't really set out thinking that I was going to, to build anything on the scale of what John Allen had or even try to mimic what he had. There were some locomotives I liked that he had and some structures. The, um, so first was the catalog. Second was actually meeting John Allen and seeing his layout in person. The third thing I think that really, uh, started, started me going was when uh, Lynn Westcott and Bob Hayden had published the Model Railroading with John Allen uh, book. Um, I have it in my hands right now, Model Railroading with John Allen by Lynn Westcott. Lynn Westcott actually passed away before this book was published. Uh, Bob Hayden picked it up and finished it, and he's just recently republished it uh, last year, I think it was. And opening it up here, it's uh, 144 pages, and the people who who uh, are, are huge fans of John Allen, we refer to this as the book. So if you see anything writing in about the book, that's the book they're talking about. And in that, they really they personalized John Allen because they talked about his history. They and then you saw the progression from uh, layout one and two in a small home that was not much bigger than a mobile home into the much larger layout he had. In, in his new home in Monterey that, that occupied about 630 square feet as the, the room did. Well, it was an odd-shaped room, but um, that got me to thinking that why wouldn't somebody rebuild that layout? I thought if Disneyland burned down, uh, wouldn't they rebuild that? Um, to a lot of us, the glory and defeated was a fantasy railroad, obviously, and he felt like you had entered a whole different world when you walked walked into that that layout. Um, I I never really thought that I would end up building anything close to that. But when the opportunity came up to um, to have a, a large layout room, uh, my layouts of that room is roughly 425 square feet. I kind of designed. I set the Set the size of the other room. I, I wanted to make sure that um, I didn't get over my head. Uh, there's a it's a large layout to tackle anyway. Um, so I thought, well, let me just see what I can come up with here. And and what I did is I I 
there's a track plan in the book. It's a two-page track plan, uh, three-eighths of an inch to a foot or so, and I, co- I photocopied that, and I just took my scissors and I started cutting up sections of it. I, I really, I thought, well, I'm going to need, I want an engine, uh, a roundhouse and a turntable area, a uh, roundhouse, turntable, uh, yard area. I thought nothing wrong with it. If, if it was work for John L., it worked for me. So I kind of trimmed it down a little bit, and I was, in effect, I was selectively compressing it. Um, I always liked mountain railroady, and I, I wasn't going to model the, the cornfields of Iowa. I, I wanted a mountain railroad. I like, I like the mountains. I like the streams. I like the bridges. The good old bridges are, they're time consuming to build. But I, uh, I was able to, to put together something, and you can see the track plan in the article. I put together something that I thought would work. I I had to make some significant trade-offs. One was the whole area of Gory and Defeated, which is, sits on a peninsula. I had to turn the peninsula, really trim that down. I really shortened the town of what he called Andrews. Um, and I did not have room at the port area to make a loop, uh, which is why I put a turntable in there to turn locomotives. And so um, I... There were a few other things uh, that I wanted to do. Some of the locomotives, um, I really liked his locomotives, uh, several of them. And so I started uh, building some of those. And I, like I said, I, I don't think I consciously started out to to build, to resurrect it. Um, and and I, I certainly didn't resurrect exactly what he had. Um, but I captured the elements of it. I, I wanted to have, have that feeling that, that even though John wasn't here, that um, his railroad could live on, live on. And when I walk in the train room, I, you know, you, you, you're going to definitely, if you know that Gory and defeated, you're definitely going to think you're, you're somewhere around that area. Um, had, and I'm sure that had John Allen never had had the Gory and defeated layouts uh, been in existence today, I probably would have taken a, a different path. I would have included included some elements in it, but. Um, I'm not the only one who's uh, replicated some of his some of his stuff. So it it it, def- it definitely evolved. And I um, my hats off to my good friend uh, Dave Gorell, who has he has recreated almost all of the Gory and Defeated locomotives, and he's 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 them up for the Gory and Defeated. I'm going to build several of them as well, but they'll be decaled for the Pine Ridge. Uh, railroad. So that's kind of how it, that's kind of how it evolved. Okay. Now, so you've got about 400 and some square feet there. Uh, give a, is that roughly 20 by 20? What kind of dimensions are we looking at? Yeah. If you, um, the, the area of French Gulch area along there, a long straight wall, that is 21 feet, three inches, like that's the north wall. Along the east wall, there is a stairway, a stairway that the back of the stairway goes up uh, to the kitchen on the back there. Uh, that east wall where it hits the layout, where it ends at the layout at, at the port area is 20 feet 8 inches. Along the, the, the west, the west wall to the wall where the, uh, my roll top desk is, is that's 18 feet 6 inches. And you can see on the track plan where I have a, I have a, a display cabinet there that's five feet. The entrance to the layout room is truncated. 
but then over in the corner where the stairwell goes up, there's kind of a nook there that's roughly uh, four feet by eight feet, and I've got my uh, spray paint booth um, housed in that corner as well. Probably the, you know, the downside, there's always a trade-off. I, I struggle to fit everything in. Uh, I wish I had more uh, aisle space. Um, it's, it's crowded in there if you get too many people in there. And just, you know, uh, building a house is a real new experience. And I think as a homeowner, when you say you want a, you know, 11 by 13 foot room, the architect um, might draw that 11 foot by 13 as to the outside of the house, and you're going to lose six inches of wall in there. So you can uh, you can get some you can lose some surprises there. The whole side, the whole north wall and east wall are cement foundation, and we lost a little bit of room when they poured that foundation. I was thinking uh, that that would probably be more on the order of six-foot wall, and it was closer to a foot. Um, that that's going nowhere, <laughs> so it's kind of kind of built back into the to, a, to the hillside. Um, so I, lo- I lost a little space uh, space there. So I didn't anticipate having a whole crowd of operators um, in here, but uh, so that's kind of how I. Kind of give me an idea of the size of the room here. Okay. Now, how did you build it? Uh, is it a along the wall? Uh, you know, you cantilever yeah. off the wall. Well, it, it's not. But I'll tell you, Paul. I, I wish that there were some areas there where, where I would have done that. Um, I, I definitely could have done some cantilevers off the wall. It's basically L girder construction with legs. Um, it's it's real solid construction, um, but there are some areas there where um, I could have done away with a few legs and uh, and cantilevered it. Um, the other day I had a visitor in and said, "Well, how do you move this thing?" <laughs> well, you don't. You got to be happy with it. And I and I had another I had another surprise when I was laying this thing out to have the architect come back and say, "Well, they passed the plans off to an uh, independent." engineering firm they came back and said we you need a support column here uh, by this back stairwell so i ended up with a column there uh, just on the other side of the main line at great divide so i I tell people john allen had a lot of calls to deal with at least i only had one so okay uh yeah some of the photos of his layout he had a lot of intrusions into his space yeah and i i put uh i used a half inch uh plywood with a with a half inch home slope base. I did not uh, really have a, a, a well defined roadbed. It's the roadbed is kind of a, an optical illusion with the with the um, with the ballast. Um, I had really toyed with the idea of um, uh, purchasing the home bed uh, pre cut uh, beveled beveled roadbed. Um, I, I didn't want to I didn't want a, a really well-defined roadbed, but a little bit would have been fine. So, and I, um, I'm using flex track, and I and I drive the spikes in it in the home, so it holds that really well. Okay, was it Coach seventy? Is that what you're using? I'm using uh, Code eighty-three now. Went with a little bit more rigid Code eighty-three. It's uh, 
It's mostly Walther's Code 83. Fortunately, they came out, they offered a lot of, of curve turnout, which really saved me because then I would have been faced with uh, hand-laying turnouts. But as most most people know, the, the code, Walter's Code 83 is basically the Shinohara track or code that's used for Code 70. I do have a I do have a few microengineering turnouts. I've seven uh, number six turnouts up by the uh, main line uh, in, in Great Divide. I, I I would recommend to people that they they stick with a uh, with a single manufacturer that. The microengineering railhead's a little bit narrower than the Walther, so there's a little bit of a, an adjustment that you've got to make for that. Uh, I think the microengineering track is fine, but I, I'd still recommend maybe sticking to one vendor if you can. That, that said, there is some Code 70 track um, at the town of Gory. Gory interchanges. There's narrow gauge at Gory and defeated. And my storyline is that uh, the Pine Ridge Railroad narrow gauge the section of track from Gory to to defeated, which John Allen's the standard gauge. But that intersection there, because the that is Shinohara dual code 70 track and the couple turnouts there, their dual gauge turnouts are, are code 70. And when that track, when the narrow gauge meets up with the standard gauge to go across what I call French Gulf, that dual gauge track is code 70 all the way over to the west wall where there's another there's a dual gauge turnout and then the loop of track the new loop of narrow gauge track at the highlands is is code 70 and then just just for kick i have a straight section along the north wall i i really wanted to get one of the arch bridges in there at french Gulf. that's code 55 atlas can't really see the track uh, unless you're on a ladder and then i've got a another little loop of markland z slash n and three track uh, also gives another force perspective there those that's kind of the track on the on the way up there. I just mentioned too that when I first started, they didn't have the DCC friendly turnout. So the sections at Gory and the Great Divide along the whole east wall there, those are non DCC friendly turnouts. The rest of the track at Pine Ridge, Poobah City, Andrews, all that is a DCC friendly turnout. I use a uh, Switchmaster turnout throws, and it's really easy to power the frog, the metal frog there. Uh, through that, through that. So, um, I have no problems there. Uh, occasionally I'll get a short on the non-DC friendly turnouts, uh, particularly when, uh, it's basically when a wheel flange is touching the point. So your DCC, I think in uh, the video I, I detected sound out of the one locomotive. So your DCC sound? Yes. The, the DCC is Digitrack's, uh, DCC system. It's radio controlled. I typically don't operate on radio power. I pretty much uh, am always plugged in. I find that if I'm switching, it's a little more responsive if I'm not on if I'm not on radio, and uh, seems to work fine. I will say that I've uh, I've fried about three of the throttles because the room is carpeted and the dry humidity up here. And I said, you know, maybe I could spray something on it. And I I sprayed the carpet with static guard. And uh, when you do that, uh, don't try to do the whole room. Do break it up in about three or four sessions because. <laughs> It'll stink up the house, but it seems to have worked really well. Um, I always try to uh, ground myself by touching one of the control panel toggles before I pick it up. So, but I've been very happy with the system, and it does. The goal is to have all of the locomotives with the sound uh, speakers in them. I thought it was very interesting. One, the basis of the article is like a fan trip, and then two, the backstory that you created for. How the Pine Ridge created uh, the Gorian defeated. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was uh, neat. Uh, what gave you the idea for the backstory? 
Well, um, several years ago, after this, after the layout started to get going, I, I know that a lot of, particularly the fictitious uh, model railroads, where somebody would write a story about, you know, where they're hauling grain from here to there. And I thought, well, let me come up with a story here on, you know, how did the Pine Ridge Railroad end up taking over the Glory Undefeated? Um, I guess I had one advantage in that the that the Gorian defeated layout was no longer in existence. Nobody was going to argue with me on it. I said, well, the time frame I set for the, for the Pine Ridge Railroad is in 1954. Unlike John, gives me the opportunity to, to put, to put a few diesels in there. John, John didn't have too much love for diesel. He loved the steam. It gives me an opportunity to run F3s, F7s, some, some diesel power in there. And so I set the story in 1954. Well, Coincidentally, that's uh, when John Allen started on the third and final layout. And so I thought, well, the, I had a town, I incorporated a town over the area near uh, on that peninsula of Great uh, Gorian Defeated Peninsula. So I had a town there. I needed a namesake town. And so I thought, well, let's see. Uh, we're sharing some trackage rights with the uh, Gory and the Feed, and we're running, we're really running into, to, um, Great Divide, and we're, we're running up into Andrew and Rand. And so I thought, well, it came up with a story that John Allen, then he, he retired to pursue his interests in, um, and photography. And so we basically, uh, took over the, the railroad. Since we had a business relationship with the railroad, uh, we, we had a similar logo, and I just read, Pine Ridge Railroad is just now going through and replacing the letters G and D on the logo with the P and R and changing the letter, keeping the engine numbers the same, and, of course, adding a few different uh, locomotives to it. I had um, – so that sounded like a – since that sounded like a feasible uh, thing for a uh, story, and I also – I needed to – since I didn't build what's called the upper summit tier, which is really uh, the tracks that John had intended the tracks to go over – Great divide and connect up through Scalp Mountain through one of the final bridges. He was, uh, supposedly about five months away from completing the summit tier track, the upper summit tier track, which would have completed the main line. Uh, he was probably about five months away from that, uh, before he passed away. Just if you look at the way he operated his layout, and I'll touch a little bit more about that later, but when you look at the way he would have operated layout, it would totally change the operational aspects of the layout by adding that. I didn't have that, so I just put the story in that the Pine Ridge Railroad sold that whole section to Jim Finley's uh, uh, Tioga Pass. And uh, as a lot of folks know, Jim Finley uh, was a good friend of John Allen and built a lot of John Allen structures. So I I also came up with the diagram, uh, not only for the letterhead, but the conceptual, what I call the conceptual map, of what the railroad was conceptually supposed to be looked like as a division, the the Gorian Defeated was a di- was part of a division running from the east at Great Divide all the way to the westernmost division point, which is Gory. So what I did is I had written a story about taking a passenger train trip along the layout when Lou Matt had thrown out the offer to. Uh, feature the Pine Ridge Railroad, I used that as my uh, foundation point for coming up with a story. Since I didn't have, I don't really have any passenger cars painted. I've got some, but they're not painted. I said, well, let's just let's run it as a freight and throw an extra caboose on the end for, for more passengers. So that's kind of how, how that, uh, that story evolved. Well, and as we were talking, I mean, we've both done photo freights on steam and stuff. I thought it was a, a novel idea. 
Well, the GD had elements of uh, whimsy at uh, Alan is creating these new levels of realism. And did you uh, include any of the whimsy in yours? I didn't see any dinosaurs in the uh, in the article. Yes, well, I, I have uh, I have included a little bit in there, and there I have some plans for just a little bit more. I certainly don't want to overdo it. Um, but in Figure 22, there's there are actually three figures in there that are the old uh, Sore Feet brothers that uh, John Allen has written about, and I actually spelled it wrong. Uh, I think uh, it's spelled S O R F E E T Z. There's a gentleman I actually had in the Arizona area called named Keith Blab. And Keith has uh, recreated that. Uh, he handmade these these figures just like John Allen did, and he's offered he offers them for sale. They're they're out of made out of soft metal. He kind of set up. He has some Sword Feats brothers and some other characters. So I've got those in Figure 22. There there are three figures there. The one one is really hard to see, and uh, if you look above the the locomotive cab, you can see uh, one of the brothers up on the on the bluff there. So yeah, I think it adds a little bit of. Uh, nostalgic humor to the situation. Um, we also we also have the column that we have there. We're, we're going to turn that into the Centennial State Building and kind of a knockoff on the Empire State Building. We're going to put maybe a little King Kong and a and a Fay Ray character up there <laughs> on that. So and that just is back on Keith. Um, <laughs> he's doing a couple of other interesting things and. He's, he's actually started a little bit of work on the dinosaur, so I, I need to kind of, kind of twist him or his arm to uh, come up with a dinosaur. It's a little bit uh, trippy to cast, so that's that's probably uh, about it uh, for for the whimsical. You mentioned one time you had gone to his to his house in the early days, and it didn't come up in conversation about uh, why is there a dinosaur on this thing. I, I don't think that I ever saw it on his layout. You know, there's so much to take in, but uh, I never asked him about that. But it. You know, he'd put it. He'd put number thirteen on it. He said they were having trouble training it to use the ash. They called her Emma, by the way. She had a name, and uh, he said they had trouble training her to use the ash. And he had John had a couple of other things. I don't know if you'd call them whimsical or part of his wizardry, but uh, he he really liked to use mirrors. And he had under the Great Divide terminal area, he had installed a what he called an expand a lot parking lot. He thought that the world's largest parking lot. And what he what he did on the inside is he put three mirrors in there, and then the viewer, the glass uh, where you looked looked at the parking lot, was a one way mirror. So it, it created this infinity mirror effect. And so he actually had only two cars sitting in that parking lot, but the backside of those cars were painted a different color than the front side. And then he had two figures that he had looking into the parking lot, and he put. I think he probably only had you know maybe only one light bulb that was lighting up the parking lot, and it made it just look like it because of that infinity mirror effect that just, just reflects all the way back. It made it look like it was really huge. So that's a little bit whimsical, I guess, but he had also had something called the Compressed Space Company, and I've got it. It shows on my track plan here. Um, I've got the footprint. I've got some of the design stuff. At the end of at the far, um, see, it would be to the left of where the word Andrew is, up at Andrews, at one of the, part of the end of the, of the time saver there. That building, it had an angled roof, it had transom window, windows in the front, had transom windows on the side, and on inside of the, of that building, he also had mirrors on the inside. The left side had transom windows at the top, the right side did not, but when you look at it, it looked like it did because it was reflecting back. 
And what he did on the upper on the upper right hand corner, he put in like one of these window door peepers so you could look into it and it would make things look bigger in there. Well, he put that on the on one side so a viewer could go up, put their eye on that on that uh, window peephole viewer. And inside, he had a, and I don't, it's only been described to me, so no pictures of this, what the inside really looked like. But he had supposedly a wheel that was placed, I think, like a table, maybe, maybe placed horizontally, and, and it had an arm on it, and that thing would rotate. Well, because he had all those mirrors and created this infinity effect, it looked like it was just this huge, uh, huge factory in there. And there was a button on the front edge where uh, the viewer could push that button and then this motor would spin this wheel and probably have some kind of piston on the arm on it or something. And that piece was actually removable. And I ran across a story here just recently that he would he had actually won some uh, awards of that, taking it to some shows. So that, that was a little... Insane. Yeah, he was very expert at, at the use of mirrors. And he actually, he had actually animated several things on his layout. The Finley Detrius... A rock plant that Andrew the bucket were actually automated, animated. They were actually you could actually run them over at the mine at Squaw Bottom. There was a ore dump in there that would come out of the ore, come out of the mine and dump, and then go back into the mine. So that was animated. And then he had, um, and you've seen pictures of his. There's an elevator that went up to what he called Eagle's Nest, and at Eagle's Nest there was a cabin and I guess maybe a restaurant up there. That went up from the area of Helen Gone up up in a up an elevator, you know, like an open elevator to the to the top there. And I do remember him running running that. And that was the first time I think I'd ever seen that when I saw it on the flat. But I do remember him running that for us. So he did have a he also had another piece of animation that was I haven't really seen it. I've seen it described, but I haven't seen it, any photos of it. And that was a, a moon that he had on an arm over back, back side of the mirror, end of Great Divide Yard. He had a moon. Cause he did, he did his, when he did his operating sessions, he set in, in motion a clock that would dark simulate nighttime and then daylight. And that moon would come up and, and make a, make an arc movement, uh, in conjunction with the night scene. And he painted that fluorescent color too. So. That, and that was installed. You'll see some plans of it in the book. Um, but so he, he did have some aspects of animation of that. Yeah. How long has it taken you to this point? About how much time do you have involved in the? Well, if, if you look at the actual, if you look at the actual construction itself, the construction started in November of 1999. We'd actually moved in the house that April, but they needed to build out my office and I, <laughs> I wanted to get things out of boxes, collectibles, and I had my brothers. I, I even though I sold the American Flyer stuff uh, when I was a kid for twenty five dollars to to get some HO stuff, I, I had the sense to keep my brother's locomotive. And it's a American Flyer MGK four. Ended up giving me that local, but I I had a suspended uh, loop of track on plexiglass suspended above the layout and on the outside loop is g gauge loop and on the inside is uh, f scale with uh, f helper track where the track comes in over the workbench the both the g gauge and the uh, f gauge track comes into a uh, a passing track there now the that's a lot of fun. It's it's really a pain to try to keep the track clean. It's not easy to get to. And the downside, uh, I probably pick up on some of the photos and certainly the video of, of my commentary video. 
that cast some shadows where I don't particularly appreciate it. So, but so it, it's coming up on 13 years for the actual construction of it. But there, there's probably um, six or seven bridges that I had built previously. Uh, there's a girder bridge over at uh, French Gulch. There's a trestle I built, a narrow gauge trestle that a friend of mine gave me. Um, I built uh, a how through truss bridge over on uh, what I call cami loop. John Allen called it Sims loops. There's a pony trestle. Those are Campbell kits. Those bridges are Campbell kits. So I had those, and I had uh, I had a handful of buildings. I had the engine house and uh, several other buildings, and I also had several of the freight cars. You see, almost all of them were built for moving into the into the home here, and a few locomotives. So. Um, that definitely gave me a running start. So it, it, it's hard to measure the the hours that, that went into it, but the actual construction is coming up on 13 years. Now, the photos show a lot of mountain territory because you mentioned you just love mountains and bridges too. Are any of those, you know, floor to ceiling the way uh, Alan did them? No. Um, the, the carpet definitely creates a problem. And I've had that question. My, my buddy, uh, Dave Durrell, gives me a bad time about that because it gives some nice photo ops looking at the French Gulch and, and particularly the what John called uh, Scout Mountain. But um, it doesn't go to the, to the, to the floor. Um, I, I placate Dave by telling him that I can build this little movable L panel on rollers that uh, maybe has some uh, a styrene, uh, a styrofoam base, uh, and a plaster shell to uh, maybe maybe get a uh, a photo op in there in the in the canyon. But no, it doesn't uh, go before. And quite frankly, I really uh, was certainly with a smaller layout. I needed to get access underneath. Needed to uh, the storage area comes in really handy. Whereas John's in that area where he ran it the, the scenery to the floor, that whole section of his layout was never fully excavated. He had a mound of dirt there and threw a bunch of concrete on it. So he he could walk on it with no problem. And he had, he had the foresight to run wires through that, through that area that he, he didn't end up using uh, for 20 years. So, uh, no, I, I, I stayed away from that. Plus, it's kind of a, it's an invite for, for getting damaged, so. Okay. Well, how did you, uh, how did you build your mountains? Because they are, even if they don't go to floor to ceiling, some of those are still impressive mountains. How'd you do it? Well, um, I pretty much used the technique of, uh, creating a cardboard lattice. Okay. And then, uh, in one of my earlier layouts, I was dunking, uh, uh, hydrocal soap plaster towels on it, and that is one messy process. So, I I, I went through several rolls of uh, plaster impregnated uh, uh, wrap, you know, where it's uh, where you just dip it, cut off a chunk, and dip it in water, and, and put it up on the on the lattice cardboard lattice. And then I would I overlaid that, so there's like two layers of that. You kind of overlap it, and then. I brush on a coat of, of hydrocal. I was using the lightweight hydrocal from Woodland Scenics. And then I had cast a lot of the rock molds that are on the layout uh, came off the rocks around our property here. And so uh, most of the 
most of those castings you see are, are from uh, rock molds that are applied to the scene while they're still wet. And there's also, and then I do a stippling technique where I, I've got a brush that I just stipple uh, the, the plaster to make it look rough. And then most of the retaining walls are hand carved plaster, and I, I hand carve most of those with a combination of a screwdriver and a couple of dental uh, picks. Um, and then I have where you see the, uh, particularly where you see the, there's a double sided backdrop that is actually a quarter inch styrene plastic and it's um gosh i think it's about 14 feet of styrene plastic and i needed a way to keep that uh, that uh plastic perpendicular and it's actually what i use is sheets of styrene that are uh that's kind of sandwiched between that backdrop there and uh so then i took I carved, I carved that, uh, styrofoam up and then I laid the plaster, uh, the plaster gauze over that. So that's pretty much the, the techniques I use for that. And thank, and thank you, and thank you very much for this comment. I, I, um, I then stained that with, um, Woodland Scenics paint pigment and then wash it with the black, with their black pigment. And, uh, I have a lot of my own sifted dirt. That I sprinkle on, as well as uh, woodland scenics uh, materials on that, and then the trees. The trees are um, the trees that are smaller than three and a half inches or so. Those were uh, bumpy chenille uh, trees that were trimmed up and then spray painted and and dusted with uh, woodland scenics brown foam. I. I I bought a whole bunch of those years ago, and I haven't been able to find that exact same. It's kind of a bottle brush thing material, but the, the bumpy machine chenille on some of the newer stuff, it's a real thin, uh, thin uh, branches, and uh, it, it almost borders on cloth. So, mm-hmm. um, and then the taller trees, um, I I purchased a handful of the taller trees. That there's a variety of pine trees. Lodge poles, uh, ponderosa pine, some, uh, blue spruce, and a few, uh, aspen trees. I, I purchased, uh, as a test, I purchased some of those from Sterling Models, uh, out of Vermont, and they are just fabulous looking trees, and, and, uh, so I went ahead and we probably ordered, uh, 200 of those now. We put up, we put up, uh, I think we planted about 150 of those. Trees, but I think they just absolutely look fan, fabulous. I think they're some of the best uh, commercial trees you can buy. Yeah, going back to the to the mountains, a cast in place. The uh, railroad before the one I've got now, I had a twenty foot wall that was about two foot tall, and I did all cast in place. You know, using a uh, Grand Pacific Gems uh, big silicone mold, and good grief, I was. Yeah, you know, going broke buying Hydrocal even from the Scenic Express. So I had read in an article on a couple of different forums about what's a cost effective way to do this and so especially when you the work time. Even if you play with vinegar and a hydrocal or plaster or Paris, I mean you're not gaining a whole lot. And so I had purchased this is just a Home Depot item, the cheapest thing they had. 
a tub of pre-mixed exterior, like stucco plaster mix. And so I was putting it on with a butter knife and using it to contour some some erosion. And it started drying out because it was like 4% humidity that day. So when I came in, I mean, there were only a couple ounces left in the in the Tupperware. So I, I splashed some water in there, put a lid on it, came back the next day, and it was thick pancake batter. The water had absorbed into the to the mix, thinned it, and so I went, okay. So I took just an old cheap paintbrush and was brushing it on. I must have worked with this 30, 35 minutes before it started hardening up. So I went back in and I went, well, you know, because like you, I've also got a bunch of paper towels there. And so I thinned it a little bit more. I put some more into the Tupperware, a little bit more water. Came back in two hours, and it was like buttermilk. <laughs> so I just kept playing the water off of this stuff. So I made that 32 ounces of plat premixed plaster repair. I mean, I did half an end with it, and, wow. and I just kept mixing a different consistency, and then yeah. paper towel, whatever. And I told the guys at the hobby shop, and they're going, "You did what?" I said, <laughs> "I said." I just put water in it. I said I thought it would just sit there, yeah. keep it from drying out, but it actually absorbed in, broke it down, and I said it had all of its properties. So it was just really cool. And, and how did how did how did it take the stain and paint? Okay. So far, so good. What I did was huh? I put a base coat on it, and I've yet to come back with you know a ten to one thin down of uh, a spray on type wash. So uh-huh. the crevices and stuff like that. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned you had carved on some of your, did you carve while it was wet or carve after it was dry? No, um, after it was, uh, while it was still wet. Um, and if it, and I used, you're talking about hydrocal. I bought that stuff in like 20 pound bags of black. They would send me, you know what I'm talking about? They send you, uh, uh, a uh, black trash bag with 20 pounds of it in there. Uh, but yeah, I, I carved it when it was wet and, um, if it had dried, um, because sometimes you just can't get to it, um, I would just uh, spray on some water and wet it down. And also on some of the bridges there, uh, the stone, stone bridges and stone retaining walls, I would, um, I used, I turned masonite rough side out. And put uh, uh, the, the plaster gauze over that, and then and then it, uh, kind of smoothed on a layer of the plaster, and then started carving that. And that that seemed to work pretty well. That seemed to work pretty well. Um, I, I'm I'm amazed at some of these folks who can really carve really carve rock. Um, I, I just am amazed at some of the jobs they can do. I'm not I'm not that good yet. So. No, but you're right. There's some. Uh really talented people out there. One of the blogs on the MRH site, uh, a guy is, I don't know, he's at that point where he's been doing a lot of that, and he did a retaining wall. And I, I mean, it was a big, daggone retaining wall. And I went, holy cow. Yeah, he's very skilled. Now, he did say it, it's a late-night therapy for him, but I went, wow, my hat's off to you. That is that is yeah. impressive retaining wall. 
Yeah, and there's a couple of guys that I can't even remember. I think Rand Hood, Rand Hood and Tags Fold have uh, done some just unbelievable scenery stuff. I, that, that's really amazing. I, I've also used to great success um, Arizona, Phil Anderson at Arizona Rock and Gravel. Uh, well, he's, he's in your neck of the woods. Um, he's a, I, I really, I really like his products. I've got a lot of his, uh, rap, you know, uh, 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 talus and, and rocks and, and the, uh, ballast that you see around the, the engine house areas. And, and what I like about his ballast is because it's not made out of plastic when you, when you spray it down, that, that rock stays down and doesn't, uh, uh, float all over the place like, uh, like most of the commercial ballast that you find. All right. Well, Tom, tell me, there's a, besides the mountains and so forth, we've got a lot of big expansive backdrop. Did you paint the backdrops? No, I, I wish, I wish I could say that I did, but, uh, my wife painted those. We'd taken some pictures of the 10 mile range in Colorado, and this, these were taken around roughly July in the same time frame. And we blew those pictures up, we enlarged those photo pictures, and we cut them out and formed the uh, outline of the 10 mile range. And I had I had done a little bit of uh, painting here and there under some of the bridges. I'd, I'd done some of that. And uh, my wife is, she's very artistic, although she doesn't claim to be an artist. You know, I bought her some DVDs on painting backdrops and bought her some books. And she thought, well, you know, I, I don't have time to do that. And I, so I had some colors, showed her how to mix up some of the colors. Now, these were acrylic. And I told her, I said, you know, these acrylics, they dry darker than when you put them on. So she, she got up there. We, the bridge, the high bridge over that area is removable. So remove, remove that and put a small white stool on there. And she, she spent, uh, a good 40 hours, I think, painting that backdrop. And I, I just found out a, a few weeks ago, she said, you know, I, I painted that using only one brush and I about, <laughs> about fell off the chair. Uh, but I thought she just did a, she got a really great eye for color and position and, uh, I thought she just did a fabulous job. Oh yeah. Yeah, she got a, a lot of compliments. So in the uh, article there, I had wanted to simulate one of the scenes that John Allen did. He also had a large mirror in one corner there. It was the largest mirror he had on the layout. And I wanted to make sure that I tried to simulate that picture, which would reflect back and you can see the the painting and that, and you see a locomotive there. It's a it's a figure 16A original, and I had included uh, that photo in, in what I had sent to MRH, as well as another photo that's listed as 16B. And I I thought that Joe would probably just pick one of those. Well, the, the 16A, he said, you know, the viewers are going to get confused as to which way the train's running. So he read that and reversed that, so the the viewer could understand. Okay, I see which way the train's running. And then just for contrast, he showed what the original picture was. But uh, it's very difficult to see where the mirror edge uh, begins and ends on that. But the uh, I was I really was struggled to figure out how I was going to take that because of course everything was done on a tripod, and I was able to set the camera up on a on a ladder in the aisleway uh, and get that shot. So I, I think it turned out pretty good. Tell me about your bridges. I mean. You mentioned that you already had some, you built some. There's some impressive bridges on that railroad. Well, thank you. Well, the uh, uh, the 
the Howe Deck Bridge over French Gulch. It's a very narrow bridge. Uh, the the bents. I still I have the same number of bents uh, that John Allen had, so I'm I'm pretty pretty confident that that's pretty much the same size as John Allen's. And uh, you know when you're modeling somebody else's layout like that, you know you're trying to study the photos and stuff. And I saw on his bridge that he had interior braces on the interior of that bridge, and I thought I don't even know how you glue those things. <laughs> Let alone reach them. And I don't think anybody's going to miss them. But, uh, uh, but other than that, I think it's a pretty close, uh, replica. I, I bought two Campbell through truck, how through truss bridges, basically flipped them upside down. I had to augment a few parts in there to get things to work at the end. I, I kept a meticulous track of those parts just for kicks. There are almost a thousand parts, including the spikes on that thing. Uh, so, so that's uh and I think a lot of construction uh this this kind of helps a lot uh in progress construction photos on doing that. So that's how that one was built. The girder bridges were those are scratch built, but the, the sides were atlas girders. Uh and then the 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 uh, towers were scratch built in plastic. And the uh the the bridges <coughs> excuse me, the bridges around the there's three areas where I use uh, microengineering bridges, and one area is the loop around uh, what I call Cammy's loop, which Sims loops on John Allen's layout. Those were uh, microengineering bridges, and I shortened up the center, the, the short center pieces. I tried to I tried to go for the same uh, by by looking at boxcar lengths. I could try to deduce, you know the size of those, the length of those, and then the towers. This is where I really diverge from that. The towers there are, are also micro-engineering towers on those. That was a tough bridge to build because not only is it curved, it's on a grade coming out of there. So that was a, that was a, that was a tough build. I also have two other. There's a bridge that connects uh, the main line up to the town of Pine Ridge. Those are also micro-engineering bridges. The high bridge over uh, Squaw Creek area, that is, that's close to what John Allen had, his deck girder bridge there. Yeah, I mean, his, his deck bridge that he had, the steel deck bridge he had there, his was probably six inches longer or so, and his bridges in that area were much taller than mine. Uh, the height, the height of that area is very, very close to what John Allen had, but my area that I call uh, Poobah City is roughly 38 inches from the floor, and John's wall bottom was only 30 inches. There's a large height of different. A lot of the other bridges, though, they're, they're pretty uh, uh, they're pretty close to the size that John Allen had. The, the Span Arch Bridge on the west wall, that's just a lifelike bridge, and it had a railing on it. And when I cut the railing, I said, okay, I'm, not, I'm getting rid of the railing. John Allen didn't have that. I took the railing off, and when I did that, it really made that bridge look like it was way in the distance. Uh, so that was a nice effect on that. About how far from complete are you? Well, if you look at operations, <clears throat> from an operational standpoint, there's a car float that I'm going to either kit bash or scratch build that needs to go in over the port. I'm just going to use a car float. I've got a tugboat, so I'm going to use a car float there. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that's going to, it's two track. I'm just guessing that that's going to be, that that'll handle eight, 40 foot uh, freight cars. Um, 
So that's got to go in. And then there's a small trestle. It's a coal trestle over on my layout, the town of Zachman. But that was a Corsa on John Allen Place. So just that little uh, uh, trestle over there. That will complete all of the track. I don't have any plans for uh, changing the footprint or, or adding any more track. The um, as part of the as part of the switch to the you know how technology changes in the middle of your process. I mentioned I mentioned the turnouts being DCC friendly, which that's really great. Um, but uh, Katie started to offer about when I was working on the the left half of the layout as you look at the plan. They started offering under the track uncoupler. It was a magnetic uncoupler. So I thought, well, let me try that because I'm putting in a time saver at Andrew. And the way John Allen worked that time saver with Baker couplers, it was you didn't have to do this push forward to couple and like you do the Katie's, you know, you uncouple and then you got to push it off to couple it. And so I thought, let me try the magnetic the end of the tie on couplers there, and there, there are several there, uh, because what I wanted to do is put the car over it, push the button, and pull the car, separate the cars, and and and, and that's a more realistic operation. But the downside on that is that you have to dig out the home so, uh, you have to, number one, you got to know exactly where you want that, the track, where the track's going to go, uh, you know, you got to dig out the home so to, to uh, put those in. Um, I and the other thing is you you have to make sure that your couplers are really smooth operating. I I had spray painted some of my couplers and I'm switching to the scale couplers and for the time being I'm not going to paint them. I would I would sacrifice operation over the looks anytime. I think uh, if I do it's going to be a real light dry wash or something. But that uh, seems to work really well. They're powered by I think about a 14 volt. AC power supply. I also spoke with Katie when I did that. I said, what do you got for, what have you got for, uh, narrow gauge? And they said, no, oh, HR narrow gauge. No, no, we don't have that. And they came up with an idea. If you're familiar with that coupling ramp, uh, the plates that surround the coil branch out, branch away from the coil. By flipping those coils around, you can pull the plates closer together and then they and double up the plate. So they sent me some parts, and I said, you send me some parts, and I'll test it out for you. So they did that, and in the loop, in the loop around, um, the narrow gauge loop around the highlands, there's, let's see, maybe five of those in there, and I experimented with the micro-engine, um, train miniatures, micro-trains, excuse me, micro-trains, uh, narrow gauge equipment. They were using N-scale couplers on those. Those, those don't work. <laughs> those don't work. So I also had the KD714 uh, narrow gauge couplers, uh, and those work fine. So I, I've got those in there. All of those uh, embedded cu- uh, coupling ramps, they're all installed and wired up. What I have to do is I have a, a few more, or probably a handful more, a magnetic, you know, above the, on, on the tie. I've been, I've been bugging Katie for a long time for code 83. I suppose a lot of people are. And they finally came out here uh, the last couple of years with a code 83, a magnet, so you don't have to cut out the ties. Yeah. And they said that's just barely minimal, uh, thickness, uh, to get it, give you enough t- magnetic power. I said, what about code 70? He said, no, we got to cut them so fine. It's, uh, we, number one, it's not going to give you enough power. And number two is they're, they're breaking, they're, they're breaking too easy on us. So. Um, those you gotta dig out. But 
I don't have far to go to get this operation complete. Uh, from an aesthetic point of view, I've got the, the large mountain, and that, that's uh, that's on my that's on my to-do list uh, this year. Rick Luther, who I you know I think he does a fabulous job on this track line. He, he was just amazing. And I told him, I said, I don't know exactly what that what that access hatch is going to look like, but um, that, that's how I had envisioned it anyway. And then the area that's of buildings in back of the Highlands, that is, um, I've seen some pictures, um, Daryl Huffman, who's a, a, a hobbyist, he's got a lot of video tapes out. Um, he built a little set of Jerome, Arizona, of the town that go up the, the hill, you know? Is it, is it, that's Jerome, right? Yeah, Jerome. And so I sent, uh, Luther those pictures, so he worked those, uh, those buildings in there. So, from a scenery standpoint, uh, that's pretty much going to be it for the scenery. I'm going to got a lot of backdrop buildings that are going to go along the east wall. There's building flats along there, and then there'll be some there'll be some scenery and painted buildings. That's uh, masonite back there. Just another tip: uh, we put that when we put that masonite up, we had it even with the mirror, and then after we got it up, we had screwed it into the wall. After we got it up, the mirror reflected above the masonite. So I thought, no, we got to put that masonite way up at the top, uh, you know, it's like, do it, do it now because you're never going to be happy with it. Uh, but the, one of the lessons I learned there is that the screwing that into the wall did not work because it would warp on me and I don't care what I did and the, and the, seat, the, the seam went hold. And so all that masonite backdrop was put up in liquid nails and it's been fine. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty tenacious once it cures out. So I've got I've got that, and then there's there's lots of buildings uh, that I need to build and, and detail up. And just kind of on that note, uh, Jim Finley, who was a good friend of John's, has produced over two dozen articles. And and he and what he leaves us with is uh, as a means of building some of these wonderful uh, structures that were on the going defeated. I built two of those. Defeated stations, and that's that's with uh, uh, hard balsa and and brick paper uh, in hand, hand cut out, handmade and cu- uh, cut out shingles. I made two of those. I made two of those. I made one for my friend. It took me all summer hang, to do those. He's left us with. I, I I've done several tunnel portals off of articles of his. I did the inter- interior bracing of the scratch-built roundhouse at Great Divide. I got that interior bracing uh, from from his article. And then he's got a uh, compressed gas station, a compressed gas uh, factory that's going in at Andrew. He's got the bi-level station over at what I call vacuum framework. So those those are the two that come to mind. So those are yet to be built. And it's been a really it's been really fun to make those basically from scratch. So. Okay, now the the diagram in the article. I mean, I'm correct, right? This is a uh, pretty much a point to point. Yes, it, it's laid out such that it would operate as point to point. But the the way we connect the east end, which is uh, the area of Great Divide, to the west end of, of Gorius, there's a tunnel. This the, the layout, the line actually runs up through framework and cross goes straight across the framework uh, crossing, and then that goes into a tunnel and pops out on the east uh, side of the what I call the Mount Whitby Tunnel. So that's how it can connect back up. It's a little bit difficult to draw on the track plan, but the 
when you're running from east to west, you go, I, I call it going up the hill. You go up the hill and you go around Rand and Andrew and you actually make a loop back. It loops back on itself and that drops you down into, uh, Porter King Harbor area. And then, then you can continue out uh, west to Glory. For visitors, I can run, I can bypass that, the loop that goes around, goes past Pine Ridge, Rand and Andrew. I can bypass that loop, go down, go down the hill and, and run from bypass the port, run into all the way to Gory, and then from Gory back into Great Divide. So there's actually, for visitors, um, I can actually do a continuous running there without having to throw any switches on that. The the narrow-gauge section, it runs, that's point to loop, and it runs, the, the point really starts at Gory. Uh, that runs out, there's some there's a section of dual-gauge track, then the Highlands splits off, and then at the Highlands it makes a loop around the Highlands and back. And looking at the uh, the top-down view there on page 66, that area right across from where the roll-top desk is, I see Rand, and I see the note for Breckenridge, and it says, diorama below the panel. So you've actually cut that into the fascia and we got this kind of like little hidden scene back there? Uh, yes, there, there's no pictures of this area on in the article, but sitting below Rand, there are two tracks. There's a standard gauge track that goes downhill and that runs into Poobah City. And then about four or five inches above that is the a narrow gauge track, which is a loop the loop around the highlands and so there's a station that sits in between those two tracks that kind of services both of those areas and i originally wasn't planning to build a scene there and uh my wife thought it would be a good idea to you know let's not hide all this track here so the fascia drops down about 19 inches and then the cut into that fascia is kind of like an upside down trapezoid uh, and it goes back about 16 inches and I've, I've, I finished the plastering in there. I'm going to put some Z-scale buildings uh, on the other, on the inside of the narrow gauge loop. I've got a mock-up station. It's the, it's the uh, infamous Ward Kimball's uh, Grizzly Flat Station. That's going to service the town of Breckenridge. And I'm going to turn because they're so dark in there. I'm going to turn that into a night scene, and it'll be a winter night scene. And I. I purchased, I'm going to see how it works out, uh, see if it throws enough light. I purchased two strips, they're about, um, oh, about two foot long strips, uh, of ultraviolet blacklight, uh, LEDs. Um, I'm hoping they'll throw off enough light. And then I purchased some fluorescent paint, so I'm going to paint the windows and see if I can't make that look like a night scene in there and have some skaters out there. And, uh, so I, I hopefully that'll, that'll turn out okay. So that's, uh, I'll have to include some photos uh, for you on that sometime. Do you have a group of buddies that come over, and do you have op sessions? No, no, I don't. Um, I don't really. We live in a pretty small town up here. I, I, I'm not even. I, I was aware of one person who modeled in N scale, and he had since moved out. So I don't know what the maximum 
number of people in here would be, but if we had uh, four people in here, we'd have to uh, navigate our way around one another with the tight aisles. But uh, I, I don't. Uh, one of the things that just kind of on that note, though, is there are some questions out on the out on the uh, uh, NRH forum uh, regarding them. Am I going to how am I going to use the tab? Am I going to use the tab on car system and how am I going to use it? And I need to reply to that. I, I've, I've just uh, uh, been swamped with other emails, but. The answer to your question is yes, I'm going to use the tab on car system. And I used that on my six foot by 10 foot layout and I really liked it. Um, I don't want to get into trying to read car numbers and doing the switch lists. And, uh, it really, I, I thought it was, uh, worked really well. And I, in the age of computers here, I was able to, to draw these tabs up and color them up on the computer and then print them out on color on a little bit, kind of like cardstock paper and then uh, see if I can talk my wife into helping me fold them and, and make them. But I'm going to have pretty much what, what John Allen had. I'm going to have fast freights, low freights, through freights. I have some different unit trains and some peddlers. The layout, because I, I've got an issue, and it's really hard, it's really difficult for me to figure out how to draw this on the letterhead, which is at the beginning of the article on how to draw this. But when the, the train runs from Great Divide West, and when it hits port, it goes up the hill and makes a loop around the Rand and Andrew area, comes back down the hill, and now it's in, in the area of what John called port. And in that area, I've got a Y there, but I can't use that to turn because you got freight cars sitting on the siding. Uh, that, that spurred me, uh, to add the turntable at Grail as a way to turn locomotives. But for through freights and, and for passenger trains, if I got through passenger trains, I cannot actually continue around the bottom loop by the, by the roundhouse, go back into the tunnel, come out through what I call the back door, Pull the train up to, uh, which would be a, probably the area of defeated. Throw the switch and back around that, that loop. So actually a reverse loop back around that at framework and then take off. And, and, and that will allow me to not have to, particularly a passenger train, I don't have to uncouple locomotives and get the observation on the end. And, and you can keep the locomotive, uh, pretty much running. So, uh, that's, that's, that's one, that's definitely one operational difference, uh, from John Allen. And the concept of the, the concept of the, the through freights are they, they pull, uh, uh, what did I say? They pull boxcars and reefers. And I say, uh, boxcar reefers and stock cars, uh, they're not allowed to be double headed. They're going to be pulled by heavy, heavy mics, Berkshires or 2102. And, uh, the slow freight, the slow through freights, those can be double headed. They'll take tank cars and anything else that's, that's left over. Um, but basically run when you're running west, uh, you you go from Great Divide through Gory. When you hit Gory, you take what's what I call the back door. You go through the tunnel, and that puts you back up really into uh, a Great Divide. And if you're running east, then you go through that Great Divide. You go through the tunnel and basically go in the reverse direction. Uh, so I'm able to simulate that. Uh, and, and the peddler runs, uh, some of the peddler runs will very much, uh, be along the lines of what, um, John Allen, uh, ran. So I'm interested to see how that's going to work out. <laughs> okay. And you mentioned unit trains. You talking about like reefer blocks? Is that what you're talking about for that? Yeah. Uh, reefer blocks, uh, it ran, we'll have unit coal trains and those, uh, will probably be pulled by articulated. Um, they will, uh, 
come down the hill to they can go to to the port, the King Harbor area, or west or west divide. There's this what we call the silver drag, the uh, the ore, the uh, silver ore at um, at Kuba City. That that'll be a unit train, a ore train. Uh, there's some log. There'll be some uh, unit log trains, which will take logs out of um, out of rounds. Rounds is not marked on here, but it's a spur uh, next to to Gorel. Those will take log trains either uh, primarily up to the port. There's a spur along one side of the port where we'll have a geo poke, and they'll actually poke the logs off into the into the harbor there. Well, I mean, it's it is a visually impressive model railroad, even in the two dimensional medium of a computer screen. Uh, but it is. It's very impressive. And like my uh, congratulations, you have caught the flavor of Allen. Even with that, that headline on the front page that Joe put on there, I, I went, wow, this looks like the Gordon defeated. Gordon defeated. I said that wrong. But Well, I, I really I really appreciate those comments. That's, that's kind of what I set out to achieve. So I, I think I was successful at that. So I really appreciate those comments. Okay. Now you've uh, did well, and I enjoyed the uh, the video that was a part of the uh, magazine too. I thought that was very interesting. Well, Tom, I know that you had uh, supplied a lot of video beyond what was embedded in the article. There's a uh, full length DVD coming out on your railroad. Uh, yes, um, I had sent Joe. Uh, Probably over 50 minutes worth of video with the trains running and uh, whistles going and bells running and, and me not saying a word. And then uh, subsequent to that, we also recorded a couple hours worth of video uh, of audio, pure audio. And there's also more commentary from me uh, that he has. So uh, that five five or six minute video was, was kind of a teaser. So he's got a lot to work with. Uh, and Joe does a fabulous job. So I'm a, I'm anxious to see that too. I think uh, uh, you can pre-order it now. I think it's going to be out. Uh, I think Joe's shooting for July 20th on that. So. Okay, so still this month. Yeah, and I think on the at the end of my article uh, in the magazine, if you if you flip to the page after that, um, I guess that'd be page 66 or so. There's a there's an advertisement for that. It's offering a discount for for early purchase. Okay, joke. I will uh, look forward to that. I like the fact that Joe has started supplementing the uh, the big articles with uh, DVDs. I think uh, he did one for Mike Confluence. Uh, so I'm glad to hear there's one coming for your railroad. Look forward to seeing that. Do you want to talk about the finding the GD equipment? Yeah, okay. Those would be on... On the article that page uh, gets you oriented here, they're on page 64 and 65. There's there's uh, a John Allen locomotive. There are two John Allen uh, smoke-damaged ore cars for Butler Mines. And there's a Jim Finley loco. And my my friend, uh, Dave Grells from uh, Toronto, he purchased both of these. But uh, as far as he's concerned, he said, I think they just belong on the Pine Ridge Railroad. So... Right now they're they're behind a glass enclosed display cabinet, so we're going to take good care of them. That kind of 
And these were recent purchases. Did uh, these come out of yeah, the satchel that was found? Uh, no, no. Rod Smith has the satchel. Uh, very sad looking. Have you seen that? I've seen the pictures of them. Yeah, very sad, very sad uh, looking locomotives. No, this did not. This this did not come out of. Those. Yeah, where was this equipment that it was spared? Well, <clears throat> let me start with um, John Allen's locomotive. There was a young gentleman at the time. John was building his layout uh, back in about uh, you know the early early seven years or so. Uh, Keith Blanchard. Uh, Keith Blanchard had Pine Canyon. Models is the name of the company in Pine Canyon layout, and he manufactured some HO things. He, um, his father was involved in some of the stuff that John Allen was doing, and Keith, at a very young age, built a fabulous, gory and defeated style layout. You know, floor to ceiling plaster, wonderful bridges. Um, you look at that, and you, you you think you had deja vu again. You think you're looking at, at the uh, glory and defeat, although the layout was different, you know, different different track plan and stuff. But the operators, some of the operators would come over and operate on his layout. And in about 76 or so, about three years after John's passing, John's brother Andrew showed up with some of the modelers, uh, some of the operators, and they, uh, he said he was uh, bending down, doing something on the layout. He looked up, and there sat this gory and defeated number 43 locomotive. And he's like, "Whoa, where did you get that?" There, he got a, 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 some some different stories. One was that this locomotive was John used it when he was visiting other uh, Mahler's layouts. And, frequent, and frequently traveled with a set of green Pullman uh, passenger cars. Speculation was that this was found in another room in the house in a box, or it might have been uh, at, at a visitor site. When I, I first saw this is also pictured in Model Railroad uh, a few years back. The when uh, Dave Gorell, who has a superior eye for John Allen locomotives. Um, as, as we started looking at this, we started to have our doubts as to the authenticity of, a, of the locomotive. And, and the big red flag for us was the decal lettering on the tender. That's not where John Allen put decals. However, we were, in talking with Keith, we were convinced that this was the real deal. When I got the locomotive, the thing weighed a ton. I knew that John Allen poured like the poor lead weight in, lo- in the brass locomotives. Um, I put just the locomotive on the scale and topped the scales at 30.4 ounces. I mean, <laughs> it was almost two pounds. The paint job on the locomotive was, and the, even the tender, that was spectacular. There had been a little bit of touch-up on the sand domes, steamboat domes. The other thing is that, and this this was the thing that, that sold me for sure on it, is when I turned the tender over, uh, John insulated every one of his tenders. And I could see that this was electrically insulated the way John would have done it. And to confirm that, the the other locomotive, the Jim Finley locomotive, also had the same insulated insulated uh, approach done to the tender. And which described that? How how did you know? The key to know is that Finley picked the idea up from John and wrote an article on it. And, and if you look at that article, you'll see 
he ran a strip of uh he ran a strip of brass wire between the uh the posts uh the the uh tender trucks were insulated the the couplers on this on on the number forty three there was a baker coupler on the back which is brass that was mounted on a, on a piece of wood and electrically insulated the coupler on the front of number 43 was missing, but it still had, a, had the coupler, the, the uh, wooden mount on it. I cleaned the tender trucks up on number 43, uh, did not try, did not even attempt to try to disassemble uh, number 43, the, the, did not attempt to disassemble the, the uh, shell from it, the boiler from it. The locomotive was lighted, uh, headlight glows dark going forward and and uh, dims in reverse. And I put this on the on the track and powered it up. And after Keith hadn't run it in almost 40 years, and uh, and it ran. It had a little it had a little uh, uh, locomotive growl on it. Uh, and doing that, and I I also have this is also on video, and it it runs across the uh, the Howdeck Bridge, and it runs over to the uh, trestle over on the west wall. Not pulling any cars on it. It still has the vapor coupler on it. We're pretty much going to relegate this to the, uh, to the paint cabinet. Keith, um, wasn't sure what happened with the, with lettering on, on the, uh, on the tender on 43. Uh, they're dry trans, they're dry transfers. There's painting, there's some painting out of the original lettering, which were individually applied letters. Those were painted out. Um, there is a photo, though, of this locomotive in a PFM catalog. Uh, would have been, uh, roughly, uh, 19, uh, picture of the 1958 4th edition, um, uh, in their catalog. And it's in, a, it's in the, it was in the 4th edition and, and, uh, what do I say, the 4th and 5th editions, it was also, uh, in there. Um, and, John Allen typically would exchange, uh, did a kind of a barter system exchange locomotives for pictures, I guess. So, uh, that's the real deal. Keith, uh, it's very much Keith's desire to keep both these locomotives together and Dave was able to work, work it out with Keith to do that. And, uh, we're happy and he's happy. Keith took excellent care of, uh, the locomotive as well as he, he included the, these two Butler uh, mines or cars that are also pictured, those are really not operable. Um, they've got quite a bit of smoke damage. And if you look at that, those photos, you won't believe it, but that just about everything you see there is strip wood. The hopper is really thin, thin uh, cardboard. The bumpers, the um, ends, the ends are plastic and they've warped a little bit. The couplers are dummy. They're dummy couplers and the trucks are metal. Uh, but there's, the only plastic is just those end, end supports. The locom, the Finley locomotive, I, I was really kicking myself on this one. I was looking for a 210-0 Pacific Fast Mail Frisco locomotive like this because my intention was to, I knew this, this in the locomotives mentioned in the book. As being used on the Gory and defeated. And I was looking to just re, just get a nice brass locomotive for this. I was actually looking for the latest run. 
And um, I was going to ladder it up for Tioga Pass, just like uh, Finley did. Well, I was looking. I was out there surfing about every Saturday morning. And the Saturday morning I didn't surf, this thing shows up on the web. Keith, Keith bought it because he wanted a locomotive like this. He had no idea it was Jim Finley's. Had I seen it, I would have realized that this is Finley's locomotive. Jim lived out of Dallas. This came out of Dallas Hobby Shop. And I told him, I said, if you ever want to sell this thing, uh, please let me know, or either one of these locomotives. So we were able to work it out. Um, but this locomotive, it had been since uh, retired with a can motor. It runs, it was not the latest run, but it runs as really smooth and quiet. And again, the tender is, uh, is the treatment for, uh, of Jim Finley. Uh, so we were, we were really happy to, I'm a big Jim Finley fan too. Uh, so we were really happy to get these locomotives. I think, uh, Dave's comment was, Dave Grell's comment was that on the Finley locomotive, we might, we, we could easily put a sound decoder in here because thankfully the tender's already insulated. We wouldn't be putting sound in it because we didn't want to, uh, to change or damage or disturb the tender, but I thought maybe we could put a we could put a speaker in a stock car and make up a title to pass a stock car and just maybe run it on special occasions. But uh anyway those were really, really interesting finds. So we're happy to gosh, Paul, I really appreciate uh you uh, spending time talking to me and if uh, you're ever up in my neck of the woods, uh be sure to give me a heads up, okay? I'll do the same. Okay. Yeah. It's uh you know, like I said, you know, Colorado is uh Beautiful state. Always looking for a reason to take a road trip. <laughs> yeah, especially up in the mountains via the back roads. Have you ever been on the Coombers and Toltec? Uh, no, no. Uh, like I said, when I was up in Alamosa for the, uh, yeah, that yeah. I coming back, you know, I've made a mental note. Okay. I've got to come back up for a Coombres and then, uh, like to do the Rio Grande Southern too. Well, the Coombers and uh, Toltec there—that's a beautiful trip. We took it in uh, in September when the the Aspen leaves changed a little bit later there, but you know, in the September, even probably early October, that's a beautiful trip through there. So but you can take it—you know—you can take it from uh, Antonita to Coombers, and then just you can—we just caught, caught a bus that hightails it back to Antonita. Yeah, that would. Uh... You know, that would be something I would head out and do because my wife, she does not share that passion. (laughs) That would be a single trip. Well, Tom, it's a great conversation. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, join me on the podcast. Well, it is my my pleasure, too. I, uh, I I enjoyed the trip. Listeners, hope you've enjoyed it. 